seated. How do other people know that you are a Christian? How do the people that you work with, the people that you live with, the friends that you play golf with, how do they know that you are a Christian? Now implied within that question is the reality that they must know. That it is necessary that they know. As we can see as we read throughout the New Testament, that the New Testament knows nothing of an undercover or, or secret faith. No. Christ has lordship over all of our lives. We live in submission when we come to him. We live in submission to him in every arena of our lives. Those that are public and those that are private. We know that, that when we come to Christ, that he sends the Spirit to live in us, and that God himself, the presence of God, lives in this bodily temple. And we know that the scriptures tell us that our God is a consuming fire. So it would only make sense that if a consuming fire is in you, that it would be clear to other people. That if you are living your life devoted, if you are living your life in submission to the Lordship of Christ in every area of your life, it would be obvious to others. But it's common in our day to believe that religion is a personal thing that is only to be lived, within the pri lived out within the privacy of your home. That to each his own and to each can do whatever we want to do. And so, so that we are not made uncomfortable by others and they are not made uncomfortable by us. Uh, we are to keep our faith very private. We are to keep our faith very concealed. The trouble is, is it's impossible for us. It's impossible for us to live a faithful life in the Great Commission. It's impossible for us to live a life of, of out, uh, outrageous devotion. It's impossible for us to live a life of, of radical self-denial and other people not take notice of that. And so I ask you again, brothers and sisters, how do they know? How do other people know that you follow Christ? This morning we're going to read what uh, the great church apologist Francis Schaeffer says is the primary way that you can know that you are in the faith and that other people know that you are in the faith. As we continue in our series on defining church and continue in our series on the defining values and the core values of Iron City Baptist Church, we're going to talk about how this morning our second value, which is loving one another. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? We're going to be in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 31. Beginning in verse 31, God's word says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. When we come to verse 31, we're coming to a shift in the gospel of John. Verse 31 reads, notice how it starts out, it says, when he had gone. 
when we come to verse 31, what that's talking about is it's talking about Judas. Jesus has just done the unthinkable. Jesus has just done the remarkable. Jesus has just gotten on his hands and feet and scrubbed the feet of his disciples, including Judas, including the one who would be to, to, to betray him. And so Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, has gotten on his feet, gotten a towel, and he has rubbed the, the dirt and the filth and the manure off the feet of these men, saying, this is how you are to care for one another. This is the example that I set for you, that you would do the same. And so at that moment, Judas goes out. He goes out setting into motion the conspiracy to ultimately lead to Christ's crucifixion. Setting into motion the series of events that will take place just a few hours later, ultimately culminating in Christ's death on the cross. And so there's this shift. As, as Judas goes out, as, as Judas leaves, Jesus is left with his 11 faithful disciples. If you want to, faithful is kind of a stretch there, but 11 true disciples would probably be a better way to say it. So Jesus is left with his 11 true disciples, and Jesus knows now that the series of events are, are underway, and that everything is beginning to spiral, and everything is beginning to build. And so Jesus is going to take this time to look eyeball to eyeball with those he has walked with, to look eyeball to eyeball with those that he so deeply loves, those that he has invested so much of his time with, so that he might prepare them for the hours to come, and the days to come, and the years to come. Because Jesus knows it's going to be tough. Now in that room, you need to place yourself there. This text is this, from here to, uh, through John 17 is called the Upper Room Discourse. And, that, and, and so throughout this Upper Room Discourse, Jesus is unpacking what it's going to be like and, and how they might persevere. But in this Upper Room Discourse, understand the tone of the room is intense. They're angry. They've just found out that one of them will betray Jesus. They're scared. Jesus is telling them himself, I'm leaving you and you can't come with me. They're sad. They love him. They've been following him. As you can imagine, that they're, they're in this room, probably a, a relatively small room, probably gathered around some kind of table. And you can imagine that there's this, this weird dynamic of, of weeping and anger and fear and all of it. It's just, just kind of climaxing to this very intense mood. So Jesus is going to speak to them intimately, speak to them personally. Now the way that Jesus starts this out is, is somewhat strange. He starts it out by saying, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is making clear to his disciples that the cross is imminent. Jesus is making it clear to his disciples that, that now is the time. That, that at once I'm going to the cross. At once I'm leaving you. Now is the time that we've been building up to. Now is going to be the culmination of everything that we've been doing and everything that we've been talking about. Now, think about what that means. That as Jesus looks these men in the eyes that within mere hours he will be, he will be chained to a post and beaten by a soldier like a dog. That at the, the cry of his own people, he will be nailed to a cross to hang between two thieves naked for six hours. But what language does Jesus use? He doesn't say, I'm going to be humiliated at once. 
now I go to be humiliated. That's not what he says, is it? He could have said that, but he doesn't. No, he says, no, now I am going to be glorified, that, that the Father and I are going to be glorified, and I'm going to be glorified. We are going to be glorified at once. Now, to me, that's strange language. It's strange language to consider the possibility that, that, that you are being wrongly accused in the, in the midst of this horrific conspiracy betrayed by one of your beloved, going to hang on a borrowed bloodstained cross, and that at the end of that, to, to introduce that, to understand that you say, I'm going to be glorified. This is for my glory. This is for the Father's glory, that I'm going to be glorified through the cross. Now what does that mean? How can someone be glorified through something as wretched as a cross? I like what the great church reformer Calvin says. He says, the cross is like a grand theater, which puts on display all of the goodness of God for, for all of history to admire. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen on the cross. You see, there's this, this dual sense of glory that's taking place that Jesus is talking about in verses 31 and 32. First there's the glory of the Father, and then there's the glory of the Son. So there's this, this dual sense of glory. Notice how he says that. He, he repeats himself twice to make, to make sure that we understand that, that both the Father and the Son are going to be glorified in this, this horrible cross. The Father is going to be glorified in that we see on the cross what? We see on the cross that not only did the Father make a plan to redeem the world, but that the Father took divine action to come and intercede into history, to, enter, to invade history, so that we might be able to be delivered. To put in place this, this plan where he is able to justify, to be the justifier of his own justice. So the Father is glorified in that we see that he not only has a plan, but he is loving and gracious and merciful and willing to come and to execute the plan. Then we have the Son, how the Son is glorified. How is the Son glorified on the cross? What do we see of Jesus on the cross? We see of Jesus on the cross that Jesus is both strong and powerful enough to bear the weight of the sin of the world while at the same, at the same time constraining the forces of heaven from crushing the earth. But not only is he strong enough, he's humble enough to actually do it. And so on the cross, we, there's this dual sense of glory. Where you have the divine plan, the divine redemptive plan of, of the Father being carried out by the Son simultaneously. And both of them, through the obedience of the Son, through the sacrificial obedience of the Son, are glorified immensely. Glorified, glorified profoundly through this wretched cross. Now, why does Jesus say this now? Why does Jesus look at his disciples who have just been betrayed, who are afraid, who are sad, and make that point to them. You see, what Jesus understood for his disciples is Jesus understood that for his disciples, the cross was going to appear as though it's a disaster. It's going to appear as though he had failed and they had failed with him. Jesus knows that the Sanhedrin is going to be bloodthirsty and that they're not just coming after him, but they're going to come after all of those that are loyal to him and following after him. Jesus knows that the days ahead are grim and dark and difficult and terrifying. 
And Jesus knows that it's going to be the disciples' default to believe that they have been defeated. So what is Jesus saying? When he talks about his his glory on the cross, when he talks about the Father's glory on the cross, what is he saying? He is saying, my death is not defeat, my death is victory. That the cross is not the end, the cross is the beginning. So hold fast, my children. Hold fast. You know, it's the same words that he has for us this morning. Just as the disciples needed these steadying words from Jesus as they faced what they would consider to be perhaps the disaster of the cross, as Jesus departed them, are the same words that we need as we await Jesus' return to us. Because the truth is, is that very often as we live the Christian life, it feels as though we're defeated, doesn't it? As we live out the, the, the Christian life in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile toward us, as we live out the Christian life in a world that appears to be spiraling and spiraling and spiraling more toward the ways of hell, as we continue to live out in a world in which that demands our secrecy in a way that we just can't deliver it, it often feels as though we've lost. It often causes us to want to throw up our hands and wonder if all of this is even worth it. And then matching the hostility of the world, you throw into that the fact that we're called to live this ridiculous, crazy, radical life, right? We're called to live the world in the midst of this hostility, in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of all of the brokenness, in the midst of all the messiness. We are called to live a life that prioritizes purity over prosperity, and holiness over ambition, that, that we, we take more seriously those things that we can't see than those things that we do see. So what would Jesus do for us? What is he doing for us with these very words? What he is doing is he is taking our eyes and he's saying, take your gaze and take it away from the defeat of the world and take your gaze and place it on the cross and know that if my glorification came through humiliation, so will yours. That my cross, your cross, is not a defeat. Instead, it is a victory. The struggles of this life are not the end. They are only the beginning. So press on, my children. Press on. See, these words that we have from Jesus are deeply intimate. Deeply intimate. And I, I say that because of what the way he leads into the sentence in verse 33. In verse 33, he says why? He says, little children. Little children. In all of the Gospels, this is the only instance that we have of Jesus saying those two words. In all of the words that we have recorded of Jesus in history, the, this is the only moment that we have him recorded as tell, talking to his disciples, talking to those whom he loves as being his children. And he's not talking, he's not saying this in a demeaning sense as though he's, he's lowering their maturity level or lowering their, their status in some way. No, this is him t- t- saying, explaining to them that the Father and I are united and I care deeply for you. We care deeply for you. We are here for you. I am here for you. I love you. For me, as I was, as I was thinking about this text, as I was meditating on that particular part especially, the thought that came into my mind was a soldier. Imagine a soldier, he's, he's going off to battle and he knows he's going to be on the front lines and perhaps, very likely, will never return back to his family. 
So he gathers all of his family around him in the living room for one last farewell, one last goodbye. And you can imagine the soldier gets down on one knee and he's got all of his children and he's got his arms around his children and he says, I've got to go. I've got to go. I've got to go for your good. I've got to go and fight for your freedom. I've got to go and fight for your thriving, for your health. I must go. But little tree, children, no, I'm not abandoning you. No, I don't want to leave you. Know that I care deeply for you. Know that I love you deeply. So would you listen to your dad? My sons, my daughters, would you listen to your dad, my children? I ask one thing of you. Would you love one another? Would you love one another? Would you take care of one another? Would you look out for one another? Would you lean into one another? Would you, would you be dependable for one another? Would you support one another? Would you help one another? Would you spur one another on? Would you love one another? See, Jesus is the great warrior. Jesus is the great warrior that goes to fight the battle, that goes to win the war, that we were too weak to fight, that we were too small to win. He's leaving the disciples for their own good. He's leaving the disciples so that he can go and defeat the grave, so that he can go in and defeat the cross, so that he can go and defeat Satan ultimately and finally for their good, for their salvation. But Jesus is teaching them the same thing that he teaches us. That even in his leaving in this moment, he's not abandoning them. He's not abandoning them. See, this commandment, this commandment to love one another is a commandment of grace. We typically, all the time in, uh, in when, you're, when you're talking to people about the Bible, they're talking about, they're trying to balance out this whole law, grace thing. When the truth is, is they're always the same. We have law because God has grace. And that is so incredibly clear as we, we see this new command, as Jesus calls it, here in verse 34. That this commandment that, that we, his children, would love one another is a, is a command of grace. See, Jesus knew as the, as the days were getting intense, as the days were going to be tough, that disciple, the disciples were going to need one another. That the disciples were going to need the help of one another. That the disciples were going to need to lean on one another and, and hold up one another and, and encourage one another and, and sharpen one another. Jesus knew that, and so Jesus said, I'm not leaving, I'm not abandoning you. I'm, I've got to go away, but I'm not abandoning you. Why? Because I'm going to give you one another. I'm going to give you one another. Later on, he's actually going to say in the, in the same discourse that I'm not just giving you one another, I'm giving you the Spirit, but here we're going to focus on one another. I'm, gi I'm giving you each other so that you might support each other, so that you might take care of each other, so that you might meet one another's needs. So that as the gut-wrenching moments of gospel ministry and Christian living take place in your life, that you might have a support system. That you might have people that, that are in it with you. That are in the trenches beside you. That, that understand your struggle. So I'm, I'm giving you one another as a means of grace so that you might be able to persevere and to sustain in this walk. And that's the nature of the church. That's the nature of the church. The church is the means of grace through which Christ meets our needs and sustains us as we await his return. That's what the church is. The, the, the church, we, we come together collectively with essentially nothing in common, right? Some are rich, some are poor, some are black, some are white. 
Some are from this side of the county, and some are this from this side of the county. Some are young, some are old. Some are in Africa, and some are in Calhoun County. But we all come together with essentially nothing in common, but with one bond, being the gospel, being Christ, being that, that we follow him together, being that we are, are committed to him together, living in submission to him together. And so we come together, and Jesus is saying that it's when we come together, it's, it's us staying together that will enable us to thrive in the Christian life. That it's us coming together that will enable us to know that Jesus is coming through on his promise in Matthew 28 that he is with us always. See, the way that Jesus most often makes himself known to us in this life is through the church. Through the church. Let me explain to what I'm saying. Why do we bear one another's burdens? We bear one another's burdens so that we might know that Christ is bearing our, be, be reminded that Christ is bearing our burdens, Right? When you lose someone that you deeply love, when you lose your mom or your dad or your son or your daughter or your grandson or your grandmom or your granddad, why is it that it's the church that's to, to come around you and to mourn with you and to weep with you? It's to remind us that it's Jesus that's in the valley with us. When we celebrate the milestones of life, when we celebrate uh, new weddings and new births, when we celebrate new jobs and, and new uh, houses and new all of these, why is it it's the church that's to come together and celebrate with you? It's to remind us that it's Jesus that's with us on the mountaintop, that these are gifts from the Father. And so it's, it's the church coming together collectively, reminding us that, that Jesus is with us in that moment. When you need prayer, why is it that it's the church that's supposed to go and to plead with the Father on your behalf? It's a reminder that Jesus is already doing that, that Jesus is interceding on your behalf between us and God, that, that he gives us access to the Father, that he was a mediator long before your brother and sister ever was. See, it's the church that gives us a tribe. As fellow sojourners, as, as fellow pilgrims, moving toward Christ, moving, growing in our knowledge of his glory, growing in our understanding of him, growing in his image in ourselves, that brings us together. It gives us a place to belong as we live between these two worlds. It's the church. And so we're never alone because we have the church. And we're never without because we have the church. And we're never, we're never without hope because we have the church. And we never are without being able to see Jesus because we have the church. The church comes together to move forward that way. Now, if you'll remember back a couple of weeks ago when we kind of kicked this series off, I kicked it off by talking about um, the two greatest commandments from Matthew 22, right? We, we kind of framed this whole series up in that everything that we're doing is kind of emanating from uh, that we are to love God with our allness, we are to love God supremely, and that we are to love one another, or we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? I believe that when we come to John 13, that when Jesus is talking about this being a new commandment, that he's intending for us to connect it with those other two. That he's intending to, to kind of add, as a matter of fact, I, I think that this commandment is really kind of a, a branch off of the second greatest commandment. And if you'll remember back when I talked about those first two great commandments, I told you that they were outrageous, Right? I said that the first one is outrageous because God demands that you love him with everything. That, God that you love him with your mind, heart, soul, and strength, right? That you love him with everything. That you live in complete devotion to him, which is something that we are all incapable of until we are with him. 
And so we strive and we, we strive and we strive to, to offer him everything that we have and, and to live in complete submission to him in every area of our life. The second command was outrageous. Why? Because he doesn't just say to love your neighbor. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. To want for them the same standard of living. To want for them the same standard of success. To want for them the same thriving that you want for yourself. So to pursue their happiness and to pursue their joy the same way that you pursue your happiness and your joy. Now why is this third commandment outrageous? Because I believe it's equally outrageous, if not more so than the second. Jesus says what? Love one another how? Just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. See, this is not a new commandment. Going all the way back to Leviticus 19, this has been throughout the scriptures, permeating throughout the scriptures, that we are to, to love one another, that we are to love other people. But what makes this commandment new is that clause. That clause. Because it's, Jesus is just now here. And Jesus is raising the standard of love. And he is specifically talking about love within the church. Love among the disciples. How are we to love one another? How are we to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? We are to love them by the standard of Christ. Do you sense how outrageous that is? That would be like the equivalent if you went down to Gazna State and you signed up for an art class, right? So you're wanting to learn how to like draw a, a pigeon you know, you're wanting to learn how to draw a really sweet tree to, to maybe put up around your house, do some stencil work or something. And you walk into the Gazan State classroom, and the professor has a picture of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. And he says, all right, if you want an A, this is the standard. You would pound your fist on the desk and say, outrageous. And yet that is only an infinitesimal small picture of what Jesus is saying here is the standard of our love for one another. Our standard is his love, his love for his church, his love for us. That's how we are to love one another. Now, to understand practically what that means and what that looks like, I think there's, there's two verses here in the immediate context that Jesus is pointing us back to. I think the first one is in uh, verses 14 and 15. This is when Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. In verses 14 and 15, he says this. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So when Jesus tells us that we are to love one another as he has loved us, I think there's a very real sense in what he is saying is, is that you ought to be washing one another's feet. You see what the church is, is the church is the world's largest collection of foot washers. Isn't that a blessing you come here today, there's probably three, three twenties, I don't know, however many people are in here. You come here today, we're gathered around in these cushy red chairs, you know what all of us are? All of us are foot washers. We do pedicures. That's our deal. We all are the people that get on our hands and knees and scrub the dirt and scrub the manure off of one another's feet. See, what does it mean to be a foot washer? What it means to be a foot washer is to meet a very practical need in self-sacrificing, self-denying love. That's what Jesus does when he washes feet. The, the need that they had was real. They, they lived in a time where there were no socks and shoes. There were sandals and dirt. There was no plumbing. So you can imagine the garbage and the additional things that were perhaps in the streets. It was a real need. 
And so the Son of God lowers himself and he begins to wash them. Not because he has to, he had absolutely zero obligation to do it, but because instead he loved them in a self-denying, self-sacrificing way. That's how we're to care for one another in the church. We're to put aside status. Do you see that here? Jesus puts aside that he's the ruler of the universe. Jesus puts aside here that he's even the teacher of a group of disciples. Jesus puts aside his status to instead do what he had no responsibility to do, which was wash their feet. This is why in the early church it was such a beautiful thing. In the early church, you could have slaves and masters, and yet when they gathered together in the church, there was not slave and master, but yet brother and brother, co-heirs with Christ. Can't you imagine in Roman society how that just flipped everybody's lid? That's how we're to live with one another. We come in here today, and we're not teenager and seasoned elder. We come in here today, and we're not doctor and plumber. We come in here today, and we're not factory worker and teacher. We come in here today, and we are brothers. We come in here today, and we are sisters. We come in here today, and we are co-heirs with Christ. We are one family. And so we put aside our status so that we might meet the needs of one another. We sacrifice for ourselves. We deny ourselves for the good of the body. What does this look like? means you've got a death in your family I've got your back because I'm going to wash your feet you lose your job can't take care of your family for a while things go south you get hurt can't work we're going to take care of you we've got your back because we are your brothers we are your sisters we are his church we're going to wash your feet something happens to you and you leave this life and go to the next and you leave behind a family, you leave behind a wife, you leave behind children. Brothers, no, they're taken care of. No, they're taken care of because why? Because there's the church. We have the church. We have one another. We are not alone. We endure together. We suffer together. We bear burdens together. We are together and we work, wash one another's feet. And so we, we deny ourselves. We sacrifice our good for one another's good. But it's not just foot washing that I want you to see here in the immediate context. It's also cross-bearing. Let's go back to verses 31 and 32, right? Verses 31 and 32, what does he say? Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. We have to remember, as we read this new command, that all of this is in the shadows of the cross. That all of this is framed up in the understanding that Jesus is going to the cross. And so when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, we have to remember that he is loving us to the cross. He is loving us at the expense not just of his comfort, but of his life. And that is the picture of how we love. And this is why he will say in John 15 to his disciples, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his brothers, for his friends. So we don't, just, we don't just wash feet, we bear crosses for one another. Bear crosses for one another. Consider what it means to love one another with the spirit of the cross. It means that even when you're unfaithful, I'm still going to be faithful to you. It means even when you're betrayed, you still love one another. Even when you're done wrong, you love one another. Even when you're forgotten, you love one another. 
even when you've got nothing left to give, and even when they've never given you anything, you love one another. Why? This is the spirit of the cross. This is what it means to bear one another's cross. This is what it means to live in a community of grace where we are forgiving, where we are merciful, where we are redemptive. Always looking for a brother, always looking for a sister, not to be condemned, not to be beaten down, but to be lifted up and reconciled with one another and reconciled with us and reconciled with Christ. So even in their lowest moments, even in their most sinful moments, the church does not turn its back on them. No, the church runs to them, even when it's in the form of discipline, so that they might be reconciled. They bear crosses. Now let me ask you, most of you have been around church your whole life. Maybe you haven't went, but you've at least been around it. Isn't this a beautiful picture of what the church is? This is much different than what we typically see, isn't it? This is much different than the typical way that we come to church. This is much different than the typical way we've come to think about church. We typically think about church in the form of an event, don't we? And so what we do when we're going to choose a church is we, we go from event to event to event to try to find one that is possible for us to endure for an hour, hour and a half. And once we find the event that we can endure for an hour, we go to the show each week and then we leave as soon as we can to go out, get in the car and go to lunch. Glad that we've checked that off the list. And we even go to some of the events and they make us feel good. We even go to, to some of the events and they excite us. But the truth is, is that excitement goes away quickly. That's just the nature of events. Events are flashy, but they're also fleeting. They don't last. Brothers and sisters, we are not an event. We are a family. A family. We don't just gather together for an hour on Sunday. We live with one another throughout the week. We don't just gather together to sing some songs. We, we meet together to, to sharpen each other in the word and to invest in each other and to hold one another accountable and to encourage one another and to minister to one another and to, to love one another, wash one another's feet and to bear one another's crosses. We are a family. Families are messy. And families are difficult. And families are tense sometimes and families are, are awkward sometimes but families are forever and families are are galvanized in difficult moments and families aren't flashy they're beautiful isn't there a difference there's a difference in beauty and flash isn't there see that's my desire for our church that's the desire of our pastoral team for our church that's the desire of our deacons, and that's the desire of, of all of those that I've met with. I believe that's the overall desire for most of us. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to go deep with each other. I want us to go deep with each other. I want us to know each other. You need accountability in your life. Your, your heart is going to waver. You're a person. You're weak. You need someone to study the word with. You need them. You need them to say, well, brother, I'm not sure about that. You need them to say, hey, hey, I sense something changing in you. I sense something, some, some distance in you. you. You need that. We need to be vulnerable with one another. Look, the Christian life is difficult enough. The Christian life is hard enough. We can't do it alone. And Jesus 
didn't abandon us so that we had to. He gave us one another. He gave us each other so that we might bear crosses, wash feet, and move forward with the gospel mission. And he says, when that happens, when that happens, when, when you go deep with one another, when you understand that church is not an event, church is a family, it's a community, it's a, it's a, it's a collection of, of sojourners, it's a tribe. When you get that, when you love one another this way, what does he say? Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. The opening question was, is how do other people know that you follow Jesus? Verse 35 tells us how. It's about how much you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about how devoted you are to the fellowship. It's about how committed you are to the success of one another. It's about how you wash feet and how you bear crosses for one another. You see, true Christian fellowship is one of the most potent means of evangelism. It's, it's true Christian fellowship that is magnetic, that, that draws people from the community, that, that draws people from the place that you work. When they see how the church steps up to meet your family's need, when they see how you step up to meet someone else's need, when they see how you are willing to always put yourself in the background so that you might help others, it draws them to, them, to you because it just stands out. In Iron City, our effectiveness will never exceed our togetherness. Our effectiveness will never exceed our togetherness. We've got to be together. We've got to be galvanized. We've got to be committed to one another. We've got to be gracious with one another. We've got to be forgiving for one another. We've got to be willing to die for one another. Because why? It is in one another that Christ's presence is manifested to go forth into our community. And so this morning as we enter into a time of response... The question that I would ask you is, are you a means of grace for the other members of your church? Are you committed? Are you committed to come and to go deep with one another? Are, are you committed to, to going as deep with Christ as you can go? Are you committed to honoring his new command? This morning, some of you, I would invite to repent. Some of you I would invite to come and to join our fellowship so that you might, you might enter into this type of relationship with us. So that you might enter into our family and become a part of our family and, and move forward. We, we know that we're, we're part of the family in the grand sense, but in the, in the covenant sense, in, the, in the, the local sense. Joining together with us in a family to, to reach this community. For some of you, you need to go and be reconciled with a brother. You need to be reconciled with a sister. And it's going to require some self-denial. It's going to require some egg on your face. It's going to require some humility. If there's somebody here that you're not right with, then this morning you need to go and be right with them. Our effectiveness will never exceed our togetherness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father.